0: Support for this podcast comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in FDA compliance, civil litigation, criminal defense, and the hemp industry. Learn more today at therodmanlawgroup.com.
1: Just a heads up, there is some explicit language in this episode. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. Neil Pollack is a writer and satirist who lives in Austin. He's also a dad and a podcaster.
0: This is our main destination. Yeah. It's the first authentic slavery museum in the United States. And um, it's on a... uh, you know former working plantation so it has uh, carries a lot of moral weight so this was this was um, always the goal was to bring my son to this place to show him how long has that been your goal dad uh it's been my goal for a few weeks a
1: few weeks in 2016 neil turned his talents to his son's education kind of he hosted this podcast extra credit where he and his son elijah sought out lessons on topics from slavery to sex ed, stuff that Neil didn't think Elijah was learning in Texas public schools. They even did an episode about medical marijuana.
0: Elijah knew nothing about marijuana other than what he'd seen on YouTube comedy videos. Marijuana is magic. (laughs) No, 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 son, it is not magic. It's created by magical beings. (laughs) It's from the children of the forest.
1: Neil was particularly enthusiastic about this episode. The show brought them to Colorado to meet a medical marijuana patient, and while they were out here, Neil seemed to be having more fun than Elijah.
0: I want to stay in Colorado forever. Uh, I I like Austin, so I uh, I don't want to move to Colorado so you can smoke pot. I understand.
1: Now, in 2019, this episode is really hard for Neil to hear.
0: I don't really, I don't know. It's kind of painful (laughs) to me. I was so enthusiastic.
1: What do you feel like your son took away from that episode?
0: That weed is fine. (laughs) That's kind of a mistake.
1: (laughs) I mean, what was, like, what was your weed use like at this time that you were making this episode?
0: Copious. I was a daily, sometimes hourly user at this point, toward the end.
1: In that podcast, Neil was trying to teach his son about the realities of legalization, all the while ignoring that he himself was addicted to marijuana. And now that he's sober, he says this era of legalization may be a challenging time for people who struggle with the same thing. For starters, not everyone agrees that marijuana addiction even exists. Neil Pollock's story today on On Something. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. On this podcast, we talk about people's relationships with weed and when they might become problematic in a country where legal weed is a fact of life in many places. Neil Pollack put out his first book in 2000, a collection of his essays from Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and McSweeney's, to name a few. He often wrote under this comic persona, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American American. writer. Do you remember the first time that you used marijuana?
0: I do. I was 15 years old, a sophomore in high school, and I went to a party with my friend Gary. Uh, I was at some apartment near our high school. There didn't seem to be any uh, adults around. And there was a bong. I took a couple of hits. And I just remember being plastered to a couch and i i picked up a phone book and i spent a couple of hours trying to rip it in half that was really? my really yeah that was my uh entire uh, ex- first experience of marijuana and then someone drove me home and i uh got into the uh front hall of my house and i collapsed on the floor and my mom came and found me and i just started sobbing
1: <gasps> oh my god
0: Maybe that was a sign that marijuana and I weren't meant to be together, but uh, I didn't heed it.
1: He didn't try it again for a while. In his early 20s, at the very beginning of his writing career, Neil says drugs were always sort of in the background. But any writer out there knows this. Sometimes you just need to fill the time.
0: When you have an unstructured day, a lot of times it's easy to fill it with substances, right? That's why so many writers become alcoholics yeah, or use drugs because they have time and they don't have to answer to anybody at any specific moment for any specific reason.
1: Well, I also feel like there's like a trope of, you know, this substance helps me write better too.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I certainly fell into that trap once I started writing books. I mean, I, I wrote 10 books... Baked out of my mind, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. And if you go back and you look at my books, there's a lot of scenes of people getting high.
1: Ten books. Weed played a bigger and bigger role, not only in Neil's creative process, but in his daily life. It became part of his persona. And many fans of his work, who also really liked Weed themselves, were drawn to Neil when he would come through town.
0: Well, honestly, the reason I moved to Texas was because I was on a book tour, and uh, I did a reading at uh, Book People here in Austin, and the bookstore employees got me high in the parking garage after my reading, and I was like, well, this is a cool place to live. Huh. I can get weed whenever I want. And then, you know, we had a kid, and my wife got a job, and life manifested itself.
1: Around this time, Neil wrote a book called Dad" about the challenges of being a new father. But the outward signs of success kept coming. He sold the movie rights to that book. And the family moved to Hollywood in 2006. Now, at that time in California, recreational weed was not yet legal. But there was California's long-running and kind of loosey-goosey medical marijuana program.
0: I went to some office in Beverly Hills. Where there was a blonde guy with like nice teeth sitting behind a desk. There were no medical degrees on the wall. He took my blood pressure with a child's toy. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, with a toy. You know, he said, "What's your problem?" I told him I was, you know, depressed and anxious, and, um, and then I gave him not much, like twenty bucks, <laughs> and uh, he gave me a medical marijuana card, and that was it. And then I went to a dispensary and bought a big bag of weed, and uh, the party was on.
1: At the time, did you remember thinking that, oh, this must be bullshit? Or were you just psyched to get a med card?
0: Yeah, I, I knew it was bullshit. Everyone knew it was bullshit. I mean, there were people with HIV and glaucoma and uh, you know and other conditions who were getting medical marijuana cards who didn't think it was bullshit. The system was not created explicitly so stupid hipsters like me could indulge in their addiction, right? Right. Um, but...
1: But But it's like a pretty easy, it's easy to get.
0: It was just the scam you worked, you know? And so I got my card and I proceeded to spend the next five years so high all the time. I was so happy and excited. I looked at this not as an addiction, but as freedom. I was free at last. I kept saying, imagine if you loved coffee more than anything, but it had been illegal your entire life. And then suddenly, you found a way to get coffee that wasn't going to get you arrested or in trouble. And it was the best coffee you'd ever tasted. I remember I went to a, a fundraiser at my son's preschool. He was at some hipster preschool in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And, you know, it was in a tent. And the entire tent stank of marijuana. Ugh. Like, super dank. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, just a little whiff in a corner. I mean, I destroyed that place. And I was sharing it with other hipster dads, but you know, who thought it was kind of funny. But really, it was just sad. Yeah, I was getting high everywhere I went. I didn't care. I was smoking pot everywhere.
1: Things didn't go well in Hollywood. Dad never became a movie. Neil did get hired by CBS to write a pilot for a sitcom, but That was the same day that the Hollywood writer's strike began. And if that wasn't already devastating enough, there's that other big thing that happened in 2008. The recession. Which made the situation dire. He and his family packed it up and moved back to Austin. Back in Austin, Neil self-published Stretch, chronicling his foray into yoga. And that book did well, so he self published a bunch of ebooks on Amazon. He was back to writing, which was what he wanted. But while he was parked at his desk at home, typing away, he was hitting a weed vaporizer all day. In 2013, Neil decided to distance himself from weed for a while. When a rare opportunity came along. And
0: our returning champion, a writer from Austin, Texas, Neil Holland,
1: who's one day We'll be right back after this break. Hey, it's Ann. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make on something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling, and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to OnSomething.org. And contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. This is Jeopardy!
0: Here are today. I know this sounds strange, but I, I took the test to appear on Jeopardy, and I passed it. And then, for the first time in oh, I don't know, 15 years or so, I stopped using drugs for like six weeks. Really? Uh, I took time off to clear my head and study for Jeopardy. And so then I, I appeared on Jeopardy and I won three games. Pick again. All right. Political before and after for 2000. A Will Ferrell racer who liked to go fast speeds in as governor of Louisiana. Neil. Who is Ricky Bobby Jindal? Yes. And, you know, won $62,000. Basically, I won enough money so that we could put a down payment on a house. Before and after for 1600 A South Carolina senator becomes an integral part of a s'more. Neil. Who is Lindsey Graham Cracker? That's it.
1: So you, you come off drugs for six weeks to prep for Jeopardy. I mean, that's... So first of all, prepping for Jeopardy has to be very stressful. Um, but also like that if you're saying that's the first time in 15 years that you come off of drugs, like that must have also been stressful on your body as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was doing I was doing two hours of yoga a day. I was meditating. I was exercising. Neil Pollock is our champion. You are a yoga instructor. In what tradition? I trained in the Ashtanga Vinyasa tradition. Oh, that one, of course. Yes. Well, uh, what is it? Very hard. Really? Yeah. It's it's uh, you know I lost a lot of weight. I lost like I totally 10 to 15 pounds. It was stressful on my body, but it was also probably good for my body, you know? I went on, I did pretty well, but after it was done, I went out to eat with my parents. And then as soon as I could, I went and visited some friends and got high. Like I got high the same day I had the, probably the most extraordinary experience of my life. And I went back to my hotel room, shoved a towel under the door and you know, smoked a joint. <laughs> You know, Mm. I held off as long as I possibly could and then I then I got high again.
1: Not long after he became a Jeopardy! champion, Neal found steady work as a Texas correspondent for The Cannabis. The Denver Post started this online newspaper in 2013 to cover legalization, just as Colorado was about to launch recreational sales the following year. Since 2015, Texas has had a pretty restrictive medical marijuana program, and Neal covered a lot of near misses to expand legalization there. But sometimes he traveled north for work.
0: I started coming to Colorado as often as I could.
1: You had a nickname for Colorado, if I remember correctly.
0: I called it Free America. Why is that? Well, to me, like the legalization of recreational weed was just like, like the ending of slavery. Like I kept, I actually was, I was actually comparing it to that. That's how that's how diluted I was, you know. I was like,
1: yeah, that's not a good look. <laughs> you no, know, I was like, at
0: least the end of Prohibition. It yeah, was. It yeah. was the end of Prohibition. It was probably how alcoholics felt in 1933, you know, and they didn't have to go to their speakeasy right. anymore. They can they can just drink themselves to death at their own, at their kitchen tables again. You know, it was, I would say less than the end of slavery, more like the end of Prohibition. So I wanted to celebrate. What I ended up doing instead was just like going to Colorado and like getting high and a bunch of sleazy hotels. went to Oregon and went to a, like a dinner party where they had a buffet of marijuana edibles.
1: Oh uh, God.
0: Yeah. And, I'm sorry. You
1: know, that sounds like way too much.
0: Oh dude, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I wasn't just getting a little high, <laughs> you know, I wasn't just like, yeah. I was smoking huge amounts of weed all day, every day. I was kind of approaching junkie territory. <laughs> I started having, like, public meltdowns, personality-transforming public meltdowns. I would, like, lose my temper. I would yell at waiters. I was a a drug addict. I mean, my grandfather was an alcoholic, right? I had some alcoholism in my family. And so I always, and I saw what it did to them, you know? Mm-hmm. I saw how, you know, it by the time they you know hit 60 years old they were their their lives were about alcohol. Yeah. Were all about alcohol. They would hide bottles. They you know they, they would do whatever they could to drink. And I was like I'll never be that person. Yeah. And I, ironically, I was that person but it was just about marijuana. It had gotten to that point. And so yeah, I would be like, yeah, I'm better at trivia when I when I'm high. The Dodger game is not any fun to watch unless I'm high. Yeah. You know, it's time for the amazing race. I have to get high. Like, if you have to get high to watch The Amazing Race, then you've got a problem. That is, like, not a stoner show.
1: How much of this do you feel like was visible to Elijah?
0: He could. I'm sure he could smell it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I didn't do it in front of him.
1: But does he, I mean, do you feel like at this time he had a sense that you, if not had a problem, like you were just using it a lot?
0: I don't know. I don't know. He probably understands Mm -hmm. that I was using it a lot. My wife certainly did. Because, you know, I would sometimes go outside and do it. I don't think either knew the extent to which I was getting high all the time.
1: In early 2017, Neil's father got sick and fell into a coma. And while he was unconscious, Neil's mother also fell ill and had to be hospitalized. Neil went to Arizona to visit them.
0: So I was high when she died, and I watched her die. Oh my god. Yeah, uh, you know, over 36 hours stoned the whole time and then I was high at her funeral. I gave a, a gummy to one of my cousins and he's like he's like we got to talk about this stuff you're taking. I can barely walk.
1: Was was it a way to just be somewhere else?
0: I don't know. I don't know what it, it was just the way I was. I wasn't even using it as an escape necessarily. You I was were depending high. on it. I, w- I was depending on it for everything. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to change in a time of crisis. So after my mother died, you know, and then my father, we had to wake him up from his coma to tell him that his wife had died while he was in a coma. And she hadn't even been sick when he'd gone under. So, of course, that was another excuse for me to do drugs. We had to try to nurse him back to health. And so I was going to Arizona a lot and spending time like in this place that used to be, it's not always like a place of joy, at least a place of, of, of some comfort, and, you know, good memories. And now it was like this mausoleum. After my mother died, it really started to take a toll on my marriage. I was just not present at all. And when I was physically present, I was not emotionally present. My wife said, boy, you really have a a lot more of an edge to you since your mother died. And I was like, yeah, and I like it. That's what I said to her.
1: Why'd you like it? I don't
0: know. It's like, that was the sort of moment where like, She said that was frightening when I said that to her. You know, that was the moment when the addiction completely had won. I wouldn't say I'm like the warmest, sweetest guy in the world, but I'm not a monster. My personality had completely vanished and had been replaced by this bottomless pit of selfishness and need.
1: I mean, do you feel like she was starting to recognize that at that time? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. But there's nothing she could do. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: She couldn't stop me. No one could stop me but myself.
1: Later that year, in the fall of 2017, the Dodgers were headed to the World Series, and Neil was a huge Dodgers fan. On top of that, California had freshly legalized recreational marijuana. So he got on a plane and went to LA.
0: Then I woke up the next morning, got stoned, and said, today's the day. I'm going to the World Series today. So I bought a ticket. I spent more than $900 on my credit card which is a lot of money for me.
1: Neil went on Facebook and announced to the world that he was going to the game. And this is where Neil's fame kicked in. He immediately got a response from a guy he had never met before. This guy was offering to smoke him out before the game. And the guy said he even lived near the stadium. So Neil made a stop. And then a couple of hours later, he walked to the game.
0: So I was like, yeah... I'm going to be stoned at the World Series. How amazing will that be? And I had my ticket in my hand. I was like, this is it. I'm going to the World Series. It's going to happen.
1: It was a nail-biter. But the Dodgers lost that game. But that wasn't what Neil remembered about that night. In fact, the most memorable thing happened before the game even started.
0: I get there. And they scan my ticket and they're like, this ticket's no good because I bought it from a third party site. And so rather than call the third party site, which is what I should have done and what I eventually did, I started screaming at the person at the door. And then he brought a manager along and I started screaming at him. Screaming starts, what? Do you remember? Just expletives, you know, just like, how could you do this to me? You know, I'm a lifelong Dodger fan. They didn't give a shit. You know, they don't care who I am. I was just some guy who was trying to sneak into the game as far as they were concerned. And I just started yelling and ranting and raving and I was, I was sobbing.
1: You were there by yourself too. I was, was by soft. myself.
0: I didn't have any friends there. I was there by myself. Screaming and yelling at security guards, and a phalanx of security guards surrounded me and escorted me away from the stadium. Oh my God and I spent the next hour and a half like walking up and down like if I hadn't been a white guy, I probably would' have been arrested, given how I was behaving like a crazy person I looked at myself in the mirror car mirror that I walked by, and I was like red-faced old man, bloodshot eyes. He had a huge beard at the time. it was all white. I looked like a, a drug addict. <laughs> the fact that I ended up like weaseling my way into the game and actually ended up with a better seat than I'd bought.
1: Oh, you got kind of, into the game?
0: Yeah, I, called, I finally just called the ticket company. I was sobbing to them. I was sobbing, saying my mother died, and she always wanted to go to the World Series with me, and this was my one chance. I, mean, I was lying. My mother hated baseball. I got into the game somehow, weaseled my way in. But that was kind of the moment where I was like, man, I've really got a problem.
1: The idea that marijuana can be addictive is hotly debated. The manual for diagnosing these types of things known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, does have a criteria for what's called cannabis use disorder. To diagnose something like this, the criteria asks whether a person is taking large amounts of a substance because their tolerance to it is much higher, or if the substance use prevents them from showing up for major obligations at work, school, Or within their family? Or are they continuing to use a substance that they know causes problems for them? I'm not going to diagnose Neil here. He did that himself. He started going to a marijuana anonymous meeting.
0: I started working the steps, as they say. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was annoying. It's annoying.
1: Why is it annoying? Well,
0: you got to freaking pray and... You have to do a moral inventory of all your flaws and your bad behaviors and your weird sex thoughts, and it just sucks. Do you
1: have <laughs> you, to pray? Like, I know that there's, like, the higher power thing, but... Yeah, you kind of have to. If you're a person who is does not really, like, have a higher power that they believe in...
0: Yeah, and that's that, that's why a lot of people can't work the program. I mean, it was easy for me because I have yoga, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I had a spiritual foundation. I had experienced... Some degree of transcendent something mm-hmm. through yoga. Yeah, like I, I, I had a way of accessing something bigger than myself. The hard part was um, just taking a good long look at myself. You know,
1: what did that and, involve? And just
0: recognizing that I'd lived my life as sort of a entitled hipster shit. <laughs> And I had just been so arrogant and so egotistical and so self-absorbed for so long that I would really damaged the relationships in my life that mattered to me. And I'd I'd made everything about me and I'd made everything about my bottomless pit of needs Mm. and desires.
1: Did you quit cold turkey?
0: Yes. The day I quit was the last time I, I got high. And, you know, I miss it. I miss it every day, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It was, you know, it's fun to get high. People don't do it because it feels bad. Right. You know, you know, it tastes good to me, and uh, smells good to me.
1: You seem to have like a great sense of humor about twelve-step programs and MA meetings. Like I think when we talked before, you said that they're kind, they're like not as bleak as AA because stoners are funny.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't find marijuana anonymous meetings. That, I mean. Look, there are some people with some serious problems, yeah. but and who are, who are you know struggling every day. But it's not AA, it's not Cocaine Anonymous. The level of ruination may not be quite as strong, but mm-hmm. but it's there. It's still there.
1: Neil's newfound sobriety was put to the test when his father passed away in 2018. In that moment, the way that he dealt with his grief showed him how far he had come. Neil was able to help his siblings with cleaning out the house, filling out paperwork, all of the tasks that need to be addressed when your parents die. He says he was able to grieve and to be there for his sisters while they were grieving. He wasn't trying to be somewhere else. He was right there. Neil is also a lot more present at home with his family. He cooks dinner most nights. And he thinks his son Elijah, who is 16 now, can see the difference.
0: And maybe he can, if, you know, God forbid, the signs of addiction ever manifest in him, that he can recognize them sooner than I do and get help and nip it in the bud quicker than I did. I just, you know, I wish that I can only imagine what my life would have been like if I caught this when I was 30.
1: Recently, Neil wrote an op-ed in The New York Times called... I'm just a middle-aged house dad addicted to pot.
0: I want to help anyone I can Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I think marijuana should be legal. You're not going to put this genie back in the bottle. It's not going to happen. Uh, There's just too much money to be made from it. People enjoy it too much and it has its societal benefits. But I do think that marijuana addiction is going to become more and more of a problem Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in society as it becomes more and more available so I've definitely heard from people who have said that I've, you know, opened their eyes to the fact that they might also have a problem.
1: But you've also heard from people who, like, don't totally buy it, though, right? Yeah,
0: yeah people, yeah. there are pe- definitely people who don't believe me and who make fun of me. You know, most people have been very kind. But there have definitely been some people who are, like, you know, defensive about it.
1: So I think, like, the pushback, right, comes from the idea that, like, weed itself does not have addiction potential, but you can still get addicted to it or you can form a habit, right? It's like... Yeah, but I don't
0: think that's true. Really? (laughs) No, I mean... Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? I mean, it's it obviously does. Yeah. You know, there's lots of people who are addicted to it. So, yes, it has potential mm-hmm. just because it's not methamphetamines. Right, or, right. Or, or fentanyl or whiskey. It's <laughs> like know, it, it's it, like
1: psychologically it, addictive versus physically addictive. Right? I don't know
0: if that's true either. I'm not really? a scientist. I, I don't know. That's a cliche, I think, that it's psychologically addictive and not physically addictive. I think let's put it this way. When I quit, like I had a couple of sweaty nights, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> a little bit of a headache yeah. for a couple of days. I didn't have the DTs. It wasn't physically painful. Right. Anymore. In that sense, it's not physically addictive. But mm-hmm. I mean, what's the difference? You know, True. it's like addiction is addiction and stuff can ruin your life. <laughs> the substance that your addiction latches onto is almost immaterial.
1: Neil is working on a book about all of this. You can go to onsomething.org if you want to hear episodes of Neil and Elijah's podcast, Extra Credit. We have a link to that New York Times piece that he wrote. And for resources on marijuana dependency or if you think you might have an issue with marijuana dependency, you can also go to our website onsomething.org where we have links to resources. On Something is a labor of love, reported and written by me, and marie Awad. Produced and mixed by Brad Turner, Rebecca Romberg, and John Pinot. Our editor is Curtis Fox. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Rachel Estabrook and Kevin Dale. On Something is made possible by lots of people like Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, and Matt Hers. If you like what you're hearing, talk to us on social media. We are at OnSomethingPod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join the Cool Kids Club and get our OnSomething newsletter. Sign up at OnSomething.org. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer. That again, Neil Pollock. Give me some bass in that voice, Anne. Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer. I think you're halfway there, you're almost there. Give me that again. Deeper, deeper, please. Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer. That's good. One more time. Use a diaphragm. Use a diaphragm, <laughs> man. That's great. Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer.
0: That sounded good. Support for this podcast comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in FDA compliance, civil litigation, criminal defense, and the hemp industry. Learn more today at therodmanlawgroup.com.